This is an NBA Sound System presentation of Basketball Jones with Mark Jones, produced by Hall Pass Media. To watch the entire video series, visit hallpassnetwork.com. Now, Mark Jones. All right, hello everybody, and welcome to the inaugural Basketball Jones. I'm Mark Jones, chopping it up today with the head coach of the Houston Rockets, Mike D'Antoni, joining us from his home in Houston. And Mike, before we get started, first, a shout out to all the first responders out there during this global pandemic, trying to find a cure. Shout out to those people, our doctors, our first responders, our frontline workers, our nurses, our ICU uh, care workers, our policemen, our firemen, and those looking to find a vaccine as well. And also uh, want to reach out and give a shout out to a lot of the people who are uh, not being talked about right now, our youth sports operators, an industry that is really taking a big hit right now. Kids and parents feeling a big impact of losing youth sports at this time and uh, hoping that we can get our youth sports back sooner rather than later. But first, Mike, let's uh, let's get to it, man. And uh, it, it's great to have you with us here today on the Basketball Jones. Um, I know this is an unprecedented time, a historical time that we're all going through. Uh, how are you keeping, man, first of all? Well, first of all, I just want to echo your what you said about the frontline workers and, and medical people and, and just the people suffering from this virus. It's uh, like you said, no one's ever seen it before. We don't know, you know where we're going yet, but uh, just got to keep plowing, keep going ahead, and, uh, and uh, hopefully we can get this thing under control. But uh, appreciate you guys. appreciate being here, and uh, everything's good. I mean, you know, I'm one of the least guys you need to worry about. I've got a great family unit that takes care of me, and uh, um, just trying to catch up. I mean, one, you know, so there are bright spots. Catch up with, like, called up with a lot of friends that I haven't talked to for years. So a lot of good things. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Mike, take us some. Um, I think a lot of people would want to know what a typical day is like for you from the time you wake up in the morning. You're obviously your format, your routine is is drastically changed from what it would normally be. Take us through a typical day from sun up to sundown for, for you and your family. Well, you know, nothing's typical. So but uh, what, for the last seven weeks, I guess I've been held up here at the house at the house. But uh, it changes. I'll probably do get up around seven, uh, fix breakfast for everybody. That's my job. Wow. Make sure, make sure <laughs> that's my job. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> I got to try to keep people from killing me. So uh, uh, you, you make breakfast, uh, sit and then uh, read the news. And there's a lot of news. So you go through all that. Um, and then either Zoom meetings start. Uh, you know, once a week, twice a week, three times a week, talk to staff or members of my staff, talk to players, uh, talk to media, talk to uh, friends, talk to my friends in Italy for a long time. We talked every day when they were going through the worst wow. of it. Um, and then get to lunch. I do fix lunch. So I'm, uh, I've got two things down. <laughs> uh, clean up the kitchen. In between, I am working out. So I, my body revolted for a while, haven't done that in 30 years. So I work out. And then uh, afternoon, I usually play bridge for a couple hours, go back. Laurie, uh, my wife, has fixed dinner, or uh, we've done something to, uh, to, to either go get dinner at our great Italian restaurants or whatever. And then uh, at night, uh, watch film, watch old games, whatever, whatever is available. Right. It's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm you, man. And 
you are faring much better on the facial hair and the haircut front than a lot of other people that I've seen during this uh, stay-at-home order time. Uh, who, well, is Laurel your barber too? Your, is your, it, your took, barber? it took three weeks for her to convince me that she can watch a that she can watch a YouTube video from a twelve year old to give me a haircut. So, so she did. So it was getting long. I said, "Okay, go for it." So one Sunday she did, and she only nicked me once, and I'm not lying. She cut me right here. I only bled for a half hour. Had a little tourniquet around my head. Other than that, it was good. Oh man, hey, consider yourself very fortunate, Mike, because I've seen a lot of guys, man. They they're losing it, man. Their their hair looks like they've been out in the wilderness for you know, being raised by wolves for a couple of years. <laughs> but uh, hey, let's let's talk a little bit about um, what is it like in terms of keeping in touch with your players? You mentioned Zoom meetings. Uh, I, I've heard other coaches talk about it so far and that one thing that's really coming into play is the whole mental health aspect of things. Um, making sure that, you know, players who, who don't have large families or the necessary kind of support systems, guys who are single living by themselves in condominiums or apartments, that life is a little bit unique and different for them right now. How do you monitor the, the mental health of some of your players like that that you may have on your squad? Well, you try to just touch base with them because everybody's different. Everybody has different circumstances. And we have a very veteran team. So most are with families, with friends, uh, are settled. We have a couple that – will be by themselves and uh, they're young and and uh, trying to get through it. So, you know, from, from me, Keith Jones does a great job in this aspect of touching base with everybody, put them in touch with the doctor if they need to talk to them. Uh, our strength and conditioning coaches constantly with them. John Lucas, who's our development coach, is talking to them. And we just try to fit the needs that, uh, that uh, at that moment that they, they need. And, uh, but every case is different. And, for the most part, our guys are self-sufficient. They're very go-getters and overachievers and, uh, and are great. That's, that's awesome. That's good to hear that everybody seems to and sounds like they're doing well. Let's, let's talk about your journey a little bit. Um, uh, it's been itinerant around the basketball globe, starting off in the NBA, uh, playing with a team that maybe some people may not even remember at this time, the, the Kansas City Kings as part of the NBA. Uh, Mike, did you did – you, were you on the heels of Nate Archibald with him or after him? No, I was in the – I was being trampled by him in practice every <laughs> uh, I was um, – I got there, I think, the year after Nate led the league in scoring and assists the same year. Okay. Uh, he was still unbelievable talent. He tore his Achilles my first year. Uh, that uh, And then uh, I was with them two and a half years, I believe. Right. But, uh, great time. It was Nate Archibald, Sam Lacey, um, Ron Behagen, uh, Don Coed. I was at the end of Don Coed, just Toby Kimball, these guys. And Scott Webman was my roommate. Rick Adelman was my roommate wow. a little bit. Um, so just a lot of great friends, a lot of, a lot of good people. Yeah, Scott Webman, great to, went on to be a great shooter as well with the uh, Boston Celtics. I believe he was part of their championship team. Mike, after that, it was a trip overseas to have a very successful international career. Um, also, you might want to mention you play with the, the Spirits of St. Louis, uh, San Antonio Spurs, and then to Olympia Milano in Italy. And I consider anybody that's had an opportunity to go overseas and play in the Italian league uh, very privileged and very fortunate. It's a great league and 
some great players have, have played in that league. What was the tipping point for you, Mike, where you decided, hey, it's time for me to, to make that trip and play over in Italy? What was the catalyst for all that? Besides everybody cutting me and saying you can't play? Besides that? <laughs> it was, I mean, you know, it comes down to you get cut, you uh, you get cut again or not picked up or you're looking around and, you know, everything goes through your mind. You're 25 years old and do you go back to school? Do you uh, start another career that's not working out? Do I go into coaching? Do I? Uh, and then Italy called right out of the blue. My, first, first, I was a little hesitant. I'm from West Virginia and, uh, you know, I am Italian, but at the same time, I'm going, ah, I don't know. I you away from <laughs> you had them with the name, though, right? You had them with the name. Well, I had the name, and, you know, I didn't know where Milan was, but other than that, it was pretty good. But, you know, they called and said, you know, come over. Look, I understand you're not quite sure. Spend a week with us over Easter holidays and, uh, and see if you like it. And then uh, we'll go from there. So I, I said, right, yeah, you know, a week in Italy, why not? So I went over. And it was great. And I, you know, I'm, I was so dumb at the time. They tried me out, and I didn't even know it. They, they say, "Do you want to play?" And I go, "Yeah, I'll play." I didn't realize I was. They were, they were looking at me. I thought I was just looking at them. That's and, great. Um, uh, so we had a scrimmage game, and I loved it. Uh, I like, you know, being important again, like through college, where you're the main guy, not just sitting at the end of the bench and hoping you get in. Sure. Um, so it worked out. It was 1977, and it just turned into an unbelievable experience that it would it would just change my life totally from everything from growing up uh, socially, uh, culturally, uh, basketball-wise, setting foundations, uh, using what happened to me in the NBA in college and putting everything in practice. So, you know, the next 21 years, I was in Italy. Right. And I wouldn't change it for the world. If you asked me to go back and could you play get five more years in the NBA and not do that, no, I wouldn't do it. I would go back to Italy and, you know, I got to play. It was back in the heyday, too. I mean, right. it was uh, Spencer Haywood, George Gervin came over. Matt, Bob McAdoo was my teammate for three or four years. Uh, Kenny Barlow, Joe Barry Carroll, Antoine Carr. Uh, and the people around the league just were, you know, Danny Ferry and uh, uh, Brian Shaw did that. And uh, just so many experiences, so much fun and great teams. Uh, great fan support. You know, we would have uh, back, you know, we'd have 12,000 people at every game. And it was great. Yeah. And then, you know, Italians get into it. And, and that's why, you know, a lot of times I hate to keep going on because I go on forever with these guys. Oh, but, we, love it. we love it, man. <laughs> you know, they were saying the Europeans, you know, were soft when they first came over and that they're anything but soft. I mean, they're playing through wars, they're playing with countries being split up. They're playing with fans spitting on them, yelling at them, not get paid if you play bad. So no, they were hardened. They were hardened basketball players, and so they just had a different style. They were skilled, and I knew that uh, the European uh, players would be really good when they came over. You, you had quite the interesting nickname when you were over there, um, and I'm not going to try my Italian right now, but it loosely translates into the mustache. I don't know if you're talking about the Italian style. You're talking about something else now. What you making your nickname that they gave you? The mustache. No buffalo. Well, hey, now that I have her without, I should have done it a long time. I should have cut it off a long time ago. But, you know, I had that baby face when I was 22, so I wanted to look older. And once I get into a routine, I'm. I, it's hard for me to get out of it. So uh, you know, I tried the beard. 
that didn't work. I looked awful. Uh, so I've gone through a whole, whole, I was just trying to survive back then. I got you. I got you. Hey, you mentioned some of the real uh, luminaries of basketball that you played oh, with. Oh, Yeah. I mean, Bob McAdoo, certainly uh, one of the greats of all time, um, who was, in essence, uh, kind of a stretch four before the term became popularized, right? And um, hey, you could put him anywhere. He's, he's called a basketball player at seven feet and one of the best year. He was. In the day's game, he would light us up, or you know, he, he would be unbelievable in the day's game. And he was unbelievable back then. So right. it doesn't matter what era that you play. Great basketball players will be great basketball players. You, you also you also played with uh, Danilo Gallinari's father, right? What was he like as a player? Unbelievable, good defensive player, uh, constantly after you. Uh, he was my roommate for a year. When I first got over there, a whole first year, three of us lived together in an apartment, and it was him. Uh, just a great human being. And, you know, I watched him go from, I think he was 18 years old when uh, he was my roommate to get, you know, getting a dating, to getting engaged, to being married to Mary Lisa, to uh, then he, he left our team. And then Danilo was, uh, was born when he was with another team. But uh, great person as Danilo. The whole uh, Gallinari family was just super. Yeah. But they, they come from a little bit of the country, not the big city. And uh, he's, he's a super guy. You, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. I want to go back to it. Uh, at the top of the show, you talked about being able to touch base with uh, some of your contacts over in, in Italy. How, how are they doing? And who are some of those people that you, you've had a chance to touch base with over there? I know I had a chance to speak with uh, Ettore Messina uh, at the beginning, at the front end of this. And uh, that's when everyone was really still on a strict lockdown over there. Yeah, we, we uh, especially my wife, we would, uh, you know, FaceTime. Uh, early when they were going through it, they'd been locked down. So they were like going up the mountain right before, you know, they're like two weeks ahead of us more or less. And so they were, they were struggling, not, not struggling, man. They were, they're good. And, you know, talk to Flavio Tranquilo is a really good friend. That's a journalist. He does the NBA games over there. Okay. Uh, just talking to him and his family. And it's a little bit different. They, you know, they're all in apartments and they're being like, you know, they're being there for, you know, two months or whatever it is. And, uh, a little bit like New York City. It's a little bit different when you have a backyard and you can go out and walk around the neighborhood where they didn't have any of that. They were they were inside. Right. And just talking with them and seeing how they were doing and talked to our team doctor that was the team doctor when I was there. He and his wife both went through the coronavirus. They both had it. Wow. Uh, he, he was on the front lines, um, but he got through it really well. Um, Ex-players, uh, just... You know, just a lot of friends, a lot of people that uh, that I care about, and uh, it's really a support for us to see what we're going to go through. Right. And watch them get through it, and now they're on the other side, and much better. Their spirits are up, and their uh, Italians are a great way of life, and they they make do. They don't worry about tomorrow. They're they're living the day. But uh, like anybody, it throws you for a little bit of a shock. But you know what? We'll get out of it better and and brighter and wiser, and let's go forward. Amen to that. Amen to that. Hey, while you were in Italy, um, you were number eight, and there was a youngster growing up in Italy at the time by the name of Kobe Bryant, whose dad, Jellybean Joe Bryant, was playing in Italy too. And uh, I always think about Kobe saying that watching you play as a youngster and wearing the number eight was part of the reason and the inspiration for him wearing that. What uh, what kind of interactions have you um, had you had with Kobe um, when you had come back to the NBA and he became an NBA player. Um, what were those interactions like? Just 
sharing your, your mutual culture overseas right. in Italy. Well, he was, uh, my first recollection of him was that I have, his dad played for Reggio Media. And that's about, it's about a half hour outside or an hour outside of Milan. And uh, at halftime, he had to get him off the court. He's out there hooping. And, uh, so you saw Dan, and back then, it's like he's 12 years old. How, how do I know, you know who that is? Uh, but then when I came back to the NBA, first time he ran by me, and I was on the bench at Denver, I think, and he ran by, and he started talking to me in Italian. His Italian, I was there 21 years. His Italian was perfect. Mine was with a West Virginia twang. <laughs> and, uh, but he's talking to me in Italian. And, uh, but he was uh, very worldly and, you know, went after everything with what everybody saw in the world and uh, made the mark. So it didn't surprise me after you get to know his personality that he rose to be one of the greatest, arguably the greatest. You know, you could talk, put him in a conversation with anybody. Sure. Just a dedicated uh, person to his craft and and very worldly and uh, and smart. Yeah, yeah. And I um I think about your relationship with him vis a vis the Olympic team, the Redeem team, two thousand and eight. You guys go to uh, Beijing, China, and end up winning the gold medal. And I think about some of the key shots, Mike, that he made in that championship game against Spain. The the and one, the three, the four point play when Rudy Fernandez fouls him right. and he memorably puts his finger to his lips and tells the crowd to shush. Um, how important was he to that Redeem team? Uh, you were a member of that staff on the gold medal winners. What was that like? Well, first of all, an unbelievable experience. Um, you know, we did do the opening ceremonies and everybody really wanted to do it. Once you do it once, it's like, never do that again. That's like an all day in the dead of 100 degree temperature. That was fun. Uh, but uh, just to be, you know, every day to watch them practice and uh, be around them. And and uh, Mike Krzyzewski was, was the best coach for them at that time that you could get. Just somebody that understood people's mentalities uh, develop a group, develop an atmosphere of uh, selfless uh, dedication to the sport, but also to the country, and put everything, you know, as a team ahead of any, any individual pursuits. And uh, it's just fun. It's just uh, – and then the pressure that goes with it. Uh, you, you can't lose. You know, Mike – I'm sure Mike went from uh, whatever age it was, he aged a lot because you have the best team without a doubt. But those other teams, you know, Spain was unbelievable. Sure, sure. Uh, especially, I think, I, I don't remember if it was the eight or 12. I just saw both games here recently. But uh, uh, they shot an unbelievable percentage. They didn't miss. They were playing. And, you know, the first, like, the first thing we go down a little bit and then Dwayne Wade comes in and whap, you know, we go right up and his right. unbelievable. But every player gave something. Every player was good. And uh, – it's just fun, and you know, just watching LeBron look like, you know, that's the first time that I really got to watch him play. He was like playing on a Tonka toy in your driveway. I mean, it was like, oh, yeah. micro. But it's just, you know, great, great experience and uh, uh, something that, uh, you know, if anybody has a chance, you better do it. Sure, sure, why not? What a privilege. I, I think about, do you remember that, I think it was in the first two minutes of the, the gold medal game against Spain, Mike, and – Paul Gasol is setting a screen. <laughs> Kobe just runs right through him right. and put his hand up. And I'm like, wow, it looked like he did that on purpose. Aren't they teammates with the Lakers? What, what was your impression when you saw that? 
That was premeditated foul. <laughs> was, he, he said, okay, first time first, uh, Powell sets the screen, I'm going right through his chest. I'm wow. going to show him who's still the man, whether it's Los Angeles or whether it's in Beijing. And he went right through it. And I remember the look on Powell's face was he knew it was coming. He knew. <laughs> he knew coming. He knew it was coming. Didn't even bother him. He just took it and went on. But uh, yeah, that was Kobe. Yeah. Yeah, great, great spirit for competition. You know, I, I want to jump back with Kobe and you back to Italy. And you talked about the the spirit of the Italian people. It's it's so effervescent. It's so um, strong. Uh, one of my favorite vacation places, actually. And I'm going to give you a list of my favorite restaurants because so much of the Italian experience for me has been a, a wonderfully cultural experience. A place called Lantica in Sorrento another place called Tasso in Sorrento, and uh, Della Loro in Rome. I'm trying to roll my R's just right for you. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, uh, well, I, there you are. There you I are. trip there with my, my wife and daughters and went to see the three tenors, you know, the three tenors oh, wow. yeah. while we were there. Um, yeah. It was incredible. What, what part of that? Uh, the meals? I don't have to tell you about the meals. I mean, there's one of the desserts uh, that we had at Il Buco and swimming in the grottos when we – rented a boat one day and got onto the Mediterranean, uh, jumped in the water, had a tremendous experience there. Mike, if you've got any friends in the Department of Immigration in Italy still, <laughs> I need the phone number because I want to become an Italian citizen. Now, you, know? Uh, you know, it's funny you're talking about restaurants. I remember when I first got there, we're going to some game on a bus and uh, we stop at, you know, tr like a rest stop that has uh, uh, a place to eat and all that, you know, like a coffee bar or whatever. Right. And I'm going, seriously, we're stopping at a, <laughs> a truck stop to have a pregame meal or with the team. And then I go in, I'm like, oh my gosh, these guys are cheap. And then we had the meal, one of the best meals I've ever had. Wow. And it's like, no wonder, it doesn't matter. You can name three million restaurants and they're all good. And I don't know why. I mean, is it because we're in Italy and we think it should be good in our head? Our brain can't decipher it, but every meal is incredible. And the company you're with and how they go about it. And we used to eat at, uh, we had a place, Il Torchietto, which in Milan, and I was in Milan for 17 years. And after every game, uh, we would meet at the Torchietto. That would be the team, friends, the owner, the general manager, everybody. There would be about at least 20 every night or 30 people in the in rooms back and we would spend six hours back there eating amazing every game and it, it was for 17 straight years and i remember all the americans would come and you could see them after about an hour they'd get fidgety like oh right, right. what are we doing we got to go right you know by the time they left at the end of the year they didn't want to leave they would eat for eight six hours and just sit there and then talk and uh, laugh and uh you know went from the table went from one end of the table was strictly Italian to a mixture in the middle to English on the end. And I was usually a buffer in between the Italian and the English. Interesting. By the end of the year, everybody's speaking a little bit of Italian. But, uh, and you know, just a quick story, Joe Barry Carroll right. came and, you know, he has this kind of reputation being a little aloof and a little this, a little that. He had such a great experience and I had a great experience with him. We win a title. He buys everybody on the team a watch. Wow. And everybody on the team, because he's leaving next year. I think he signed a big contract with either Golden State or, or Milwaukee. I forget which one. I think it was Milwaukee. 
And so he's going to leave and gave a speech that he almost, he, he tears got in his eyes. Oh my. It was an incredible year for him. And that's, you know, I know McAdoo told me best time he's ever had two championships in LA, Philadelphia, Buffalo MVP, North Carolina. The best time he's ever had was in Milan when we were playing. And it's just because it has a camaraderie of all the players bonding together with the owner. You know, we'd have people come in like Miss Sony. Uh, uh, Versace was there at the restaurant. Uh, you know, just people every night. If these yeah. people that you don't have, you have interaction, you know, like Mr. Benetton. You know, you just walk up to the office and Mr. Benetton sitting right in his walk in his office. I mean, just, you didn't have to call somebody and make appointments and maybe get to his outer secretary to get to the other secretary to get to him. It's like, huh? he just, you know, he wants to go play golf. He comes by my house, beats his horn, say, let's go. And I'd come down and get in his car. He's just, they're just normal love life type of people. And I can't, I could go on forever. Yeah, yeah. It's it's why I need to become an Italian citizen. I'll I'll try and do the dual citizenship thing at some point there you go. in my life. I actually had my wife and I had. Yeah, you know, we're pretty strict about who they let in. So I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, it, it would be my. We had a vacation plan to go to um, um, uh, Florence, uh, Sorrento, and Rome again, but because of the uh, the COVID nineteen, we had to cancel right. it. But we uh, we plan on going back as soon as things open up again. Right. So, when when you you finish your career in Italy, Mike, and you come back to the NBA, and you end up uh, you you land in Phoenix, where things really kind of gather together in, in a perfect storm for you, and um, it was a great time in your career. And I think about some of the players you had there, uh, you know, Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire, uh, Sean Marion, uh, Roger Bell. Um, what was it about those Phoenix days that you would call your most enjoyable times? I think the newness of it and how we uh, were playing, um, a little scary sometimes. Um, but being able, like, you know, when you get something and you put a piece in and then it's like right. chemistry, the play, the, when it went from I think, I think we can be pretty good and make the playoffs too wow, we might be the best in the league. And no one predicted that. And I, I remember a lot of times uh, we started off 31-4 and four and walking into Brian Colangelo's office and I just sat down and we just start giggling. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Can you believe how well – and we were beating teams by 20 points. It wasn't like, okay, we beaked out some wins and stuff. I'd go in at halftime almost every game. It's like, guys, I got something to say. We're up 20 points. Just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And just the, and then just watching these guys, you know, we had Joe Johnson when he was younger, uh, explode into an unbelievable player. Amari, Sean, getting Steve Nash, obviously the the piece that brought brought it all together. But people like they had great personalities. Raja Bell, Boris Diaz, Leonard Barbosa. And so it was fun to be around them. And they just, you know, just the stories and uh and being successful obviously helps. Uh, but it's a lot of heartbreak, a lot of, a lot of stuff at the end. We didn't quite get the job done and uh, things you regret, but never regret the guys that we had on our team and the fun people that I was able to hang around. Yeah, I can't remember what year it was, Mike, but I remember you guys being, you know, so many close calls. The games were so competitive uh, in the playoffs with you all. And 
Joe Johnson suffered like an eye fracture one year, didn't he? Or had an, eye, an orbital fracture and missed a game or two. And, and you guys were just right on the cusp of that that season of really making a serious challenge to win it all, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that was a, that was probably the best chance we had to win a title uh, that first year. Uh, we won 62 games. And, uh, you know, the starters were uh, Quentin Richardson, uh, Joe Johnson, Sean Amari, and Steve Nash. And – we were good. I mean, we were really good. And we're playing Dallas in the semifi or the semifinals of the Western Conference and uh, game two or three or four or something like that, Joe Johnson uh, fell and, and broke his cheekbone or whatever. And so he's out for the rest of the series. And that, that killed us. Uh, it killed us in a lot of ways. That uh, You know, we weren't deep. We had a real thin roster. And, you know, we had Jimmy Jackson coming off the bench. Now Jimmy became a starter. And Jimmy played great in the Dallas series. He played great. He he actually got us through an, an unbelievable uh, sixth game in Dallas uh, we won to go to San Antonio. But because of that, Joe Johnson was the guy that guarded Tony, uh, Tony Parker. And without Joe, you got to put Steve on Tony Parker. So it wore him out a little bit. Joe Johnson plays 35, 40 minutes, never got tired, strong as can be. But now you put, you know, Right, Steve's got to play an extra couple of minutes and do an extra yeah. couple of things. So he kind of wore down as the series went on. So with Joe being out, it complicated a lot of things. Now, having said that, San Antonio won the championship. Great team. They hit big shots. Uh, they beat us. And yeah. I just think that with Joe, would have been different? Maybe. I, I like to think so, but that doesn't mean it would have been. Maybe they have figured out another way to beat us. But right. uh, um that was, a, that was the best year. Now, we had other chances, but that was the best one. Man, I, I think about some of the players you got. You had some real talent and some, some, some toughness on your teams that maybe went overlooked or understated at times. And one of those guys, Roger Bell, one of my neighbors down here in Miami, uh, I got to tell you my Roger Bell story. So <laughs> you probably got I, everybody's going, right? Yeah. So I'm, I got a teenage son. He's in the, the ninth or 10th grade at the time. And I would take them down to Miami High School in the summertime. The gym is like 148 degrees with no air conditioning. And one of the guys that used to run the gym was Tim Hardaway and um, Roger Bell. They'd get pick, good pickup runs. So I'd tell my son, hey, we got to go down there. You got to get some good competition. So Roger, being the nice guy that he is, he would always pick my son on his team uh, to try and, you know, kind of mentor him and bring him along a little bit. And I tell you, Mike, it would get to point game, you know, and Roger would be laying the wood on guys. And it got really fierce in there. And I would, I would, I would wait for my son to come home some Saturdays and say, how was your run today, Shay B? Dad, we won about five games. Mr. Bell had me on his team again. But, man, he fought everybody in the gym again. <laughs> well, that's probably why he wanted my team because he would have tried to fight him if he didn't. So – but Roger, Roger, you know, his part, he, he was one of my favorite all the time, without a doubt. And uh, a couple stories. One, he would always drink Red Bull, a couple of Red Bulls before the game. And oh Boris Diaw, Boris Diaw would be right beside him, and he had to have his tea, sipping tea. And I'd go in and i go, hey, guys, knowing your personalities, Boris, you take the Red Bull. Roger, you take the tea. Because right now, but that's, that's crazy. Boris is and Roger Red Bull? Yeah, just, you know, it's like, wait a minute, y'all got this wrong. And then <laughs> and then I, I do know that uh, the second year, or the first year Roger was there, we're in the uh, 
semifinals against the Clippers, and they got us down on the ropes. They got us uh, – we're down three with about a second and a half, two seconds to go, and uh, they're up two to one. And so if they win this game, practically it's over. Right. And uh, uh, so we're coming back to the huddle, and I'm thinking of a play, you know, either Steve, Amari, somebody or whatever. And Roger comes to me and goes, give me the ball. I will not miss the shot. Wow. All right. So you know what? He deserves it. He went wow. and uh, um, he set a back pick and flared to the corner, threw it to him in the corner, and he pumped once. Wow. Going overtime, we win and keep the, kept us alive to uh, to beat uh, the Clippers in uh, in seven. And uh, but he he was that type of player. I mean, that was the whole series that the series before he closed close line Kobe. I remember that play. Remember. <laughs> it just it's just sometimes hey, the nicest guy in the world. But man, oh man, when he gets competitive, he's got he's got a different level. Yeah. Yeah, there's a switch that he hits for sure. You know, Mike, you talked about Raja coming to you uh, looking for that last shot. I've always considered one of your great strengths as a coach in being able to empower players to be confident. Uh, you often look at what they can, not what they can't do. And I think about some of the point guards you've been empowered over the years and some really good ones. I mean, Nash and Phoenix, um, you know, Harden right now presently and in Houston doing things that we haven't seen in the NBA ever at that point guard spot. Uh, and, and, and Jeremy Lin, uh, the whole insanity thing, a lot of people forget it. It happened on your watch in New York. And, and I remember a story Jeremy talking about after a game that he had played in New York where he had like nine or 10 turnovers and he's driving home or he's at a restaurant having a bite to eat after a terrible game. And he got a phone call from you and you told him, hey, how you, how you doing? Uh, hey, listen, next game, I want you to go out and have 20 turnovers. I don't care about your nine tonight because if you have 20 turnovers, probably means you're going to have about 40 or 50 assists. So uh, I, I, I see that something is, is what, 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 how have you gotten to that point in your career where you, you realize where players have to feel good about themselves? They have to have their heads to, to play at their optimum performance. Well, that's just, you know, as a player, that's where I function the best. If I had a coach that believed in me and told me that, and no matter, I was going to screw up, and then he just bring me aside when I screw up and say, that's okay. You know, you're great. You're doing this. You're doing that. I function the best. Now, I don't think that works for everybody. Some people need a foot maybe. Right. Um, but I know as a player that's what I – and if you got good guys, guys that you know are unselfish – guys that want to do well for themselves, for the team, for everybody, then they know when they mess up. It doesn't take me. When you shoot a shot that you shouldn't have shot, they know they screwed it up. I don't have to go and then just pile on. They know it. If they don't know that I'm in trouble as a coach, if they don't know that's messed up, that you didn't pass the guy in the corner, now you say, you saw the guy in the corner. Yeah, I saw I screwed up. Okay, that's all. Just as long as you know. And then keep going, keep going forward. You know, who cares? They make mistakes. And it's like, Jeremy, you were saying, he has eight turnovers, nine turnovers. Team might have had 12. Who cares? 12 is a good number. Right. As long as it's not, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt the team. He's 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 the one with the ball all the time. He's going to have turnovers. James, same way. James going to put up un ungodly numbers. And good. Keep, keep, keep doing it. Do what you need to do. Yeah. Um, boy, that, those were some, some great times. And I – 
you know, stops you've had in Denver, New York, Los Angeles, Houston now, um, you know, the modern day NBA um, has really uh, got to look back at your time in Phoenix as a tipping point for this whole kind of pace and space era that we're playing in now. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of taken off to another level now with the amount of three pointers that we see being shot with your current team, the, the Houston Rockets. Uh, Mike, let, let's assume that let's, let's play make believe a little bit. And we're going to assume that we have uh, a remainder of the season, whether it play out the regular season, going to playoffs, or we go straight to a playoff format. Um, what are some of the keys that you consider that are intricate, important in terms of moving ahead and just kind of being able to pick up and, and, and be successful for the rest of the season, whatever it may look at, look like. Um, first of all, the coaching history, you forgot right. the Portland Trouser assistant, the Portland Trailblazers. So you could throw that in there. Okay. That was actually a very important stop because I came back from Italy after Denver, came back to Italy and working under Mike Dunleavy. And he really told me how he structured practices, how he structured timeouts, how he structured scouting. Um, and I, I got a lot from that year. And he kind of, kind of invaluable year that got me as an NBA coach, you know, okay. in Italy, we didn't do those things. And I kind of had that mentality, even at Denver, kind of that mentality. But now I learned in Portland how to be an NBA coach with some, keep some things from Italy. Sure. But incorporate that. So anyway. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. Uh, going forward, there's a lot of keys and it's hard to say, let's do this. Well, I want to look at that. Um, my biggest thing now is just talking with the players. Just be ready. Yeah. Uh, I think the NBA will do an unbelievable great job of making sure it's safe for everybody, as safe as it can be. It's never never going to be 100%, and no one should expect that. But as safe as it can be, um, and we'll be ready, whether it's they give us two weeks or they give us a month. Uh, if we go straight to playoffs, if we got exhibition games or we got regular season games, we will adapt and we will adjust to whatever they throw at us. Because the best thing is everybody's in the same boat. Sure. You know, you can make all these plans for every different scenario. Okay, that's great. But there'll be one that you need. And whatever that is, we'll be ready for it. We'll adapt our general philosophy around, okay, we got, I'm taking a hypothetical number, we got two weeks to get ready. You know, in the last lockouts, they gave us 16 days one time, and they gave us uh, 17 days. And it doesn't bode real well because both times that I got fired <laughs> was was after a lockout. I didn't have a a preseason, a preseason, and we went straight into a lockout. So okay. it's like at the end of that year, it was like, eh, oh, so anyway, this is different. <laughs> okay, good, good. I'm glad you said that. Um, but we'll be ready, and the players will be ready. And I'm not, I know everybody is like itching to get back, but we just want to make sure that everybody's mentally and physically healthy and our trainers and our strength and conditioning coach will do a great job of not pushing too hard early and looking at the timeline what do we have and what date do we have to be ready whether that is uh you know limiting early uh five on five whether that's the uh, to pick it up you know they will do a great job of monitoring that and telling and give me guidelines okay today you can go 30 minutes and this guy can go 20 but this other one needs more you know, they'll do all that. And, I, you know, they've made it so easy to coach or better to coach, more efficient, that I rely on them for the medical, the, the well-being of players more. 
Uh, I try to watch the mentality and make sure they're all tuned in and, and they're all fresh and ready to go and confident. Uh, but uh, uh, we worked great together as a staff and whatever they throw at us, we'll be ready. That's awesome. Hey, one last thing before we wrap it up, Mike, I know that you and Laurel are very uh, interactive with every community that you've been in and all your different stops around the league and around the world. Um, I know that you've done some great things, both of you in the Houston community. Uh, tell us about how you guys have been able to reach out uh, in the last little bit here during this pandemic to be able to uh, chip in and help a little bit. Well, you know, to be honest with you, my wife is like a rock star. Uh, I follow her and she sets me up. She, she gives me like lobs here. See if you can go stand in front of a camera and do this while she did all the groundwork. So <laughs> it up. it's really not fair for me to comment on it. I will, uh, but I'm definitely not taking the credit. I'll give that to her. But she, uh, she, she actually, she goes here, show them this. She's hired a bunch of people, uh, a community actually, where she does a lot of the Harvey relief work with SBP. She's uh, really big in the, to um, working houses, getting people back in their houses, um, having fundraisers, uh, funding it uh, and doing that. But uh, this one community, she's hired a bunch of them to make masks and which we all could use. And they've made uh, close to a thousand masks uh, so far and they keep going at it and, and trying to give it out to churches, to uh, people that can't afford them or doesn't, they don't have them and just distribute all these masks to everybody because that's a big deal. Not right. only for the inconvenience for people to wear a mask, nobody wants, especially it's going to get hot here in Houston, nobody yeah. wants to. But, you know, why wouldn't you? Sure. We're, talking, we're talking eight months. You cannot tell me you can't wear a mask when you need to for eight months so everybody can go back to work and be as safe as they can. It's not for you. I get it. But it's for everybody else. You can't do that? Are you serious? Yeah, I know. And it just drives me crazy. Yeah. That, that's the stuff of being selfish or being, well, you know, I'm bigger than Croy. No, you're not. No, you're not. And it just takes a loved one to die that, that okay, you're right. Put a mask on, you know, when you're in public. It doesn't, it's not that hard. So we just do that, try to do some uh, uh, public announcements. Uh, but the big thing now, she's gearing up for, you know, hurricane season's coming here in Houston. And, you know, with in Miami, we know what you're talking about, man. Yeah, with climate change, with climate change, hey, we're talking about, and they, uh, they predicted uh, 100% more storms, bigger storms. You know, we just are getting people back in to homes for Harvey. Then we had Morelda, I think, in between, got people still out of their homes. And now we're going to have more. And it's, hey, we got to, we got to, you know, we got to step up. We got to step up the game. Last night, we, we donated and tuned in to Robin Hood Foundation. That was a, a great charity work in New York. That The show's incredible. And, you know, it's worth the price of admission. Just give them, what, give them whatever you got so you can just sure. the show. So just things like that and try to help. And everybody can help a little bit. You know, we're fortunate. Big stage. Got it. You know, take advantage of it. I can say stuff that maybe a normal person wouldn't have the opportunity. But, you know, you can give, give a dollar. You can give your time. You can call a friend. There's all kinds of things you can do. And whatever it is you do is great. But right now, we got to think about the other person a little bit and not worry about it. And although some people don't have that luxury, they got to think about themselves. And that's where we got to be better. That if, yeah. if we can help somebody do it. If you can't and you, hey, guy, hey you get, if you're going through hell, just keep going. Let's go. You know, we got we to make it.
Yeah, that's a you know you bring up a great point. Our sense of community, our uh, ability to work as one as a team, uh, our ability to realize that we're all inextricably tied together in this if we're going to make it has never been put more into focus than it is now, Mike. And uh, well, boy, and Laurel is doing a great job. Thanks. But that's what sports teaches you that it is about the team. And when you get that, then when you're in a community, it's about the community. It's about the country. It's not about individual gains, you know, because you'll be, people will be fine. You know, if you got the means, you're going to be okay. If you don't, we need to help the other people as much as we can. And there'll always be problems. There are always going to be problems to solve. Not going to get it totally right. Let's make it better. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great uh, way to wrap it up. And Mike D'Antoni, want to thank you for joining us here on the inaugural Basketball Jones. Remember that uh, you can hear all the Hall Pass media shows on www.hallpassnetwork.com slash web dash shows. So, hey, the first one is in the books. Uh, that's going to do it from here. I'm Mark Jones for Mike D'Antoni. Hey, join us again uh, next week. Hey, next uh, Basketball Jones. And uh, don't forget, uh, you can get a lot more programming from Hall Pass Media on www.hallpassnetwork.com. And we have another great show coming up with uh, Seth Greenberg next week as well called Pickup Game. That's with Seth Greenberg. That's every Monday on the Hall Pass Network. You can catch it on your web, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and other platforms. I'm Mark Jones for Mike D'Antoni. Folks, thanks for listening to us chopping it up. Stay safe. Stay blessed. See you around. Take care, Mark. Thanks, Mike.